<clears throat> this is a, a poem by Stonehouse, who was a, a 14th century Chinese hermit. If you don't read sutras when you're young, you won't know what they mean when you're old. You won't know a million doors are in your infinite, <laughs> infinite mind, indulging all day in love and hate. How often do you think about life and death? One day old age will surprise you, and remorse will be too late. It's meant to be uplifting. <laughs> Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet, said um, a paraphrase, but it was like, at birth, how can we consent to such smallness? And I love that way that he's expressing that. Both of them, I think, are very important. You know, it's this like, uh, there's such this vast ocean of awareness that is possible to be in touch with both poems are saying that, and yet, you know, what inspires us, you know, how can we consent to being lost in greed, hatred, and delusion, and then acting from that. So the the other poem is like, you know, if you don't understand this, <laughs> you act from greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, by the time you're, you're old, then you, you could have so much regret. And the the regret in both ways and not really, like, really having that sense of, like, a heart that can be serene, alive, awake, joyful. So I wanted to touch base on some things. Uh, It's more like a, a summing up or a medley. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was gratitude. Uh, And to go over again that the Buddha taught that there are two kinds of rare and precious human beings. You know, and I think that's just such a beautiful thing to say, two rare and precious kinds of human beings. One who shows kindness and one who receives the kindness being shown to them. So this is like the basis of uh, the mudita, a joyful heart, a joyful possibility for community. One way to describe gratitude is that it's dependency acknowledged. And that's actually quite deep, dependency acknowledged. So when we talk about gratitude is not possible unless we receive, it goes even deeper that, you know, unless we actually receive our food (laughs) and grasp the sacrifice it takes for the food to get to us, we won't really be grateful, yeah? We won't really take in, you know, we'll just (laughs) wolf it down and not really get that actually all of our bodies are made up of food. 
everything you see, everybody's eating each other, basically. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like, if we don't get into that angle that we can enter into gratitude from, it's really getting that sense of really what it takes to just support our body. And a part of being on retreat is, is usually getting in touch with that. Just the repetition of eating is intense. How much we really have to eat. And then how much that is taking to sustain us. So being able to have that healthy need, it's a healthy need to need somebody, you know, to need each other, to need the sun, you know, and to need the light. You know, even on a day like today where it's still going to get dark pretty late, you can feel that sense of how different it is when it gets cooler and how different it is when it gets a little darker and how that affects our mood how interconnected we all really are. So being able to receive and get what we're receiving, get what we're being given, is what the Buddha said will lead to this joy, gratitude, mudita. And there are many ways of um, attempting to talk about ways that just being, learning how to just be with no agenda also will lead to joy or gratitude, you know, because it's really when we have an expectation about how something should be, how somebody should be, how these moments should be, you know, that's when we suffer. And equanimity, that, that Uh, spiritual quality where there is no resistance to what's happening whatsoever. Whether it's, you know, we say it again and again, but whether it's boredom (coughs) or sleepiness or rainy or cloudy or whatever, you know, it's just like um, the liberation is not dependent on the experience. So it's how we're relating to experience that matters, not what the experience is. And we, by putting ourselves in an incubator like this, we get to see very clearly, you know, when we have an expectation and when we have an agenda and when we don't, and to explore what they both feel like. I used to define wisdom as the gradual lowering of expectation. Now I don't call it gradual lowering. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it's either there or it isn't. And one's either suffering (laughs) or one isn't. And it's largely determined by this unconscious, hidden agenda. If you have the good luck to be around a little kid that is just playing and has that purity of exploration, you get the sense of why it's called joyful to have this ability to just explore purely. And it's really when we can actually learn. And we have such an idea that learning is often academic or intellectual 
rather than coming from this place of just willing the willingness not to know the willingness not to know what rain is the willingness not to know what joy is the willingness not to know what anything is and this isn't like meant to become a zombie or you know a non-intellectual person it's much more that one starts making space uh, for pure exploration When I was on self-retreat in February, I would find myself hanging up laundry on the clothesline and hurrying. It would be so funny because I would just be in this kind of habit of rushing through that process. Um, And then I would be like, why are you hurrying? And I'm like, I want to sit. Like I'd have this little dialogue, you know, we do that. And I want to sit and I'm like, (laughs) great. You know, but, you know, maybe we could actually be with this experience, you know, and you'll, you know, whatever you'll find yourself rushing through, it's usually because you're trying to get somewhere else. It might be rushing through the outhouse or, you know, whatever, (laughs) you know, it will rush through something to get somewhere. And this practice is really meant to, like, question that very deeply, that every moment is important. And, uh that particular point in time it was so much fun because when you can just do that when you can just go wait a minute maybe I should try being with this experience it was so joyful you know the experience of being with the laundry and hanging it up and being with the wind and the sun it's just like it's, it changes and, and that encouragement that Stephen and I will offer you again and again to have that sense of at least seeing what that feels like seeing what that feels like to just stop and go oh maybe maybe I could try being with this and how different that feels from basically kind of not paying attention Uh, the Buddha set up a pretty intense um, system of dependency of monks and nuns on lay people, like every day, like every day. <laughs> you know, just imagine it. You know, to be dependent for your food on you know whatever somebody puts in your bowl, and that that was what he was recommending. <laughs> You know, so it's not, you know, we have this sense of like this fierce independence as being freedom, but actually he set up a system where lay people were really dependent on monks and nuns, and monks and nuns were really dependent on lay people. And that, you know, a monk couldn't or a nun couldn't go through a day without having connection with another human being and very deeply being totally humbly dependent on somebody being being put that being having the food put in that bowl. We replicate this somewhat on a retreat, but we can't totally replicate it. And in the Japanese language the word for begging bowl is just enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
the translation that I've read is just enough. And so as lay people, we can get into um, an attitude with each moment like that. That if we can just remember that each moment is not only just enough, but probably more than enough, (laughs) if you pay attention. And of course, you know, mindfulness will help us to see how judgmental we are. That is, it's not like we're trying to get rid of it as much as not be so oppressed, not buy into it. But certainly that sense that when we're tying our shoes or when we're brushing our hair or when we're dishing out our food, you can see all the ways that we can be judgmental and then you can shift the attitude like, wow, (laughs) if I can just be with a few moments of this, this is what I call manageable segments, but just try to be with a few moments of an experience that it will be just enough. Standing up, you know, how many times do we miss standing up because we're trying to get somewhere else and we think, oh, standing up couldn't be possibly where I could get fully enlightened. That's the issue. We think that if we pay attention to standing up, that's not nearly as important as when we sit down or walk, but that's not true. You can get fully enlightened eating. You can be fully enlightened with boredom. It's just like any experience. It's just it's it's the quality of the awareness with the experience, not the experience. The good news is that any moment you can wake up. You know, it doesn't depend on creating a certain set of conditions other than the attitude. But it's certainly much easier in a protected environment to really explore this and to have the causes and conditions to wake up more because we're so much more protected. So often, because we don't attend to our moments in the way I'm just describing, that they kind of build up. And by the time we're willing to be mindful, they do, they do seem very intense. So, for example, with sadness, we might try to talk ourselves out of the experience <laughs> until it just gets so intense, or anger, or loneliness, any, you know, anything that, you know, it's, it's often because we're not aware of the experience for a while, and then it kind of has to really force itself in on us for us to be willing to say, oh, maybe I, maybe I could try being with this experience. And then it's so intense. So also, as you, as you learn to attend more, um, the intensity with which things hit us actually lessens because we're actually attending to more moments. And there's less resistance. And it's the resistance that is usually the intensity. So there's this um, great, vast joy and sorrow in this world. And um, we hope that 
you've gotten a sense of how important it is to acknowledge both. That if we if we get imbalanced in either way, that we tend to um, be blind in one one half of life. So, in terms of um, the unconditional acceptance of how things are, meaning that there is pain and pleasure, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. You know, the there is this joy and sorrow. Uh, that we experience as human beings. Uh, Steve talked a lot about this, but I wanted to go into it a little bit more, the um, near and far enemies, Um, particularly around indifference, this experience of looking like we're okay. You know that kind of cooled-out dude that looks like they're okay? Um, and they can often look like they're spiritually advanced, but actually their hearts are not connected to the joy and sorrow. They're disconnected. And so, like, the description of this near enemy, besides indifference, is passivity, denial, naivete. Uh, and often that sense of a being being more cooled out but disconnected, um, it's very important to know that that's actually an emotion because it's usually not seen as an emotion. The person is seen as non-emotional. But that's totally not true. It's an emotion to be shut down. So you can think of it happiness, joy, loneliness, enthusiastic, indifferent, bored. You know, it's like there's all these different mental states, moods, and that it's just to really include that in your repertoire of emotions so it's not singled out as something because it's part of the heart and how the heart is feeling. It's not feeling, but that's feeling. (laughs) Hmm. So we have this body that's so amazingly sensitive and we have this, you know, brain and thought process that's so amazing. We have these emotions that are so amazing. Sound, sight, smell. We are just awesome, right? I mean, really, like what an instrument that we are born into. And we keep getting surprised that we feel. And we keep getting, we keep thinking awakening and enlightenment means we're not going to feel hurt. I mean, no, really. I mean, it's like you got to think it out, you know, because it really doesn't make sense when, when you present it this way, right? Like, would you think of enlightenment as cutting off your ear and getting rid of sound? Probably not. Do you, would you think of it as getting rid of smell? No, etc. But when it comes to emotion, we think it means getting rid of them. The bad ones, the ones we don't want. This is something to really question, It doesn't mean that. This heart is going to feel. It's the design. It's like the heart, like the ear is meant to hear, and the eye is supposed to be seeing, and the heart is supposed to be feeling. It's like the design. And sometimes it hurts, and sometimes it feels great. Sometimes it's neutral. That's the design. So, so, you know, it's like if you start 
that gets dark and rainy, and for you that gets a little depressing or somber, there's nothing wrong. It's more that, is there resistance to it? Do you think, do you think you can't be with it? That's the issue. One of the big, I think, really misinterpretations of awakening or wisdom is um, that fake equanimity is wisdom. So fake equanimity is that when we're pretending to be okay and we could all get the Oscar. No, really, we could all take turns getting up and... (laughs) (laughs) Really, making a case for being really good at pretending we're okay. You can't get through age five without being good at it. You know, it's like, and you know what it's like to sit there and say, I don't care if, I don't care if the back pain just came back. I don't care. See, that's not exactly wisdom. It's indifferent. When you feel that, it either you go into futility or pretending it's okay when it isn't. We all do it. We're, we're actually masters. And what, that, what we're saying is that that isn't equanimity. And it's okay, but it isn't equanimity. The opposite, the far enemy of equanimity, this unconditional acceptance of how things are, is the reacting to the joy and the reacting to the sorrow. So it's reacting to the joy by wanting it to last, and it's the reacting to the pain and the sorrow by wanting it to to go away, pushing it away, or being afraid, withdrawing from it. So one of the things that's kind of fun (laughs) to look at is just looking at those basic unpleasant and pleasant feelings. I forgot to add neutral in here, but I'll try. Um, But if you look at unpleasant and us not being aware of something unpleasant, then it it usually will lead to dislike, annoyance, irritation. And what what the Buddha was teaching is that if then if you're not aware of that, if you're not mindful of that or bring some compassion to that, then there will be a reaction to the reaction. So because actually irritation, annoyance, and dislike are unpleasant, (laughs) so something was unpleasant, and then the reaction, the mental reaction to it is unpleasant. And so we don't like that. And so that's when we start pushing the object away and we're missing this whole thing that's going on inside, and that will usually lead to fear and anger, right? And then we're not mindful of that. That leads to terror and rage. Again, the withdrawal and the pushing away. And then what do you get? War. And then people are surprised. Like, we're, we're so surprised that there's war. Just get a few people, you know, get a group like this, and if you were here three months, you'd start to see the roots of war. There'd be squabbles, oh, silent squabbles, <laughs> you know, and they get very intensified. You know, so when we did this three-month retreat for years, one of my favorite things that would happen was there was this dark um, area that there used to be a bowling alley in, and they took away the pins and everything. But people would do walking meditation down there, and um, 
there was, for some reason, there was one just bare light bulb hanging there. You know, as a teacher, you know, there's a lot of things that happen at retreats you just don't get time to sort of attend to. And for years, this bare hanging light bulb was hanging down there, and some people wanted it off. And some people wanted it on. And of course, there's no talking, right? And so what would happen is about a month into the retreat, a maintenance person would come to me and say, Michelle, where are all the light bulbs going? (laughs) I'm like, what? You know, (laughs) we don't even know this is happening, right? But it's like, that's how people were dealing with it, was stealing the light bulbs, (laughs) because that's how they won, right? So it wasn't even a switch that people could go walk up and go with meta, (laughs) with compassion. (laughs) But that's what you're meant to see. We, you know, we get so surprised, but actually, you know, that's how you start to understand how the biggest, the big messes happen, and how they happen through hundreds of years. You know, it's probably over some light that was getting turned up. I mean, it's really that way, over belief systems. We are mostly at war over, you believe that, I'm going to kill you. Wow, that's crazy. But it's normal. So, you know, you have to look at your own wars. You know, this is why we're on retreat. Really, this is why we're on retreat. There would be window wars at this three-month retreat. And we used to have meetings about the policy. You can't imagine how many meetings we would have about the policy. Because no one would listen to us. (laughs) When Ufandita came, it was so funny because he was just so flabbergasted. His policy was... If you walk in the hall and the window's closed, let the window be closed. If you walk in the hall and the window's open, leave it open. Interesting policy, right? That doesn't work for us in the West. We had to actually come up with, you know, where windows were open, where they weren't, who got to open them and close them, (laughs) because it didn't, people wouldn't do that. Actually, people would not do that. They wouldn't walk in, and if it was closed, leave it closed. So, there you go. You know, it's like, this is where, this is the roots of getting to look at, instead of, that person, why do they do It's like, oh, aversion, dislike, annoyance. Hmm. Can I be with this experience, instead of what? Holding on to something more pleasant. So the teaching is that you actually go to what's predominant. And if dislike is predominant, that's where you get liberated. You don't try to hold on to that nice, peaceful place that was happening before this person was driving you crazy. So, it's, you know, we, we do this all the time. Some, somebody's speaking and we don't want it, whatever it is, it's like to start taking responsibility for our own reactions. And again, I'm going to get to, I hope, this doesn't mean that we're a doormat. So this, this near enemy of indifference or passivity. But on a retreat, a lot of the work is around seeing our own reactions. And seeing also, is it do we get afraid and pull away? Is that our reaction to unpleasant? Or do we actually get aggressive? <clears throat> and to learn to be with those places in our own heart. <clears throat> and then with pleasant... 
you know, we might think, oh, pleasant, ah, and we might be having really nice sitting, ah, but then is there liking of it? And are we identified with that? Well, we might miss that, right? It happens really quick. And then is there enjoyment? Of course, we're not saying anything is bad or wrong. We're just saying, are we paying attention to it? Are we believing it's me or mine? And if we're not paying attention to enjoyment, it's usually going to lead to clinging and then craving and then addiction. So again, there's that human question like, oh, how how does addiction happen? Well, you trace it back, just like with war. It's very easy. And the more you understand yourself, the more you'll understand addiction and war. You'll understand how easy it is for people, actually, and how hard it is to take responsibility for being with these states and exploring them and understanding that they're impermanent and they're not us. Anything impermanent isn't you. The body isn't you. (laughs) The thoughts aren't you. The emotions aren't you. They're impermanent. They can't possibly be us. So hence, (laughs) our ambivalence about connection. (laughs) So if if we wonder why we have some ambivalence about intimacy or being here, it's totally okay to not want to be here. Of course sometimes we don't want to be here. Because it hurts sometimes. That's where the ambivalence is. So, you know, if, if the intimacy was always just the way we wanted and pleasant, you know, you wouldn't have any divorce, <laughs> you wouldn't have any troubles in this world, right? But it's because, you know, where do you get the problems? Well, it's around accepting all of these sides of all, our, all of us. And partly, you know, it's easy to say this stuff, but what's so important that I have found, and Steve and I have both found, is that to be, to be able to allow the distancing, if you see that your attention can't be here, uh, then to accept that the system actually can't be here and that that's okay. And the more you allow that, the more then th- that it will be natural to want to come back and be here. So it's really, really starting to understand that. You know, in my early years of practice, I had so much fantasy, um, and I kept trying to force it to go away, and then it got stronger. (laughs) And finally I started just, it was like relating to the fantasy, like clouds that would come through. And of course, you know, you can start getting to know fantasy for humans. Usually what we do is we get the best relationship, the best job, and we save the world all in one fantasy, you know. You're really, (laughs) really working hard, you know. But over time, you start to kind of get dissatisfied with it, and you start to see, oh, what's underneath this? And can I feel something underneath this for a few seconds? Maybe the fantasy happens again. You feel what's underneath it. Then you start sending metta and compassion and the, the need for that distraction and distancing starts to get less, gradually. Through not forcing, through understanding, through allowing what's underneath it to gradually come to the awareness. And you can see this with, 
with any friend or any partner that there's a need for distancing and there's a need for intimacy. They're both necessary. And it's the same with our relationship with ourselves, with ourselves. Where Steve and I lived um, in Honolulu, uh, Steve grew up there. Uh, I moved there in 83. And there, where the house was, there was a, it was on a street that then you, you could walk across the street and go down this lane and get to this little beach. And um, in Hawaii, access to beaches are a huge issue. And uh, they're supposed to be open. If there is supposed to be legally open access, but it always comes up into question here or there. So, of course, Steve grew up with this being open, and a few years after I moved in there, um, these people, these wonderful old couple that lived there, uh, died. And this um, amazingly difficult family moved into this house, and eventually they put up a gate and locked it. And they wouldn't, you know, basically denied access to everybody. And this was a place that local Hawaiian fishermen used as access. A lot of local families used it because it's a place where there's shallow water reef. And so it's a perfect place for families with little kids learning how to swim. And it's a, and it was a surfing spot. And so we, where we lived, you know, you'd hear all the cars pull up around five in the morning and the people would be waxing their boards and wake you up and people would, chains would hang out. And we always used to see this as a place, great, people are like doing something good, you know. Um, so anyway, it, it was very painful for so many people that this gate went up and was locked. And our neighbor <laughs> that lived next door um, eventually blew up the lock. And it was so, like, I thought that was so great, you know. <laughs> and everybody did, you know. It was like, we were all so happy that he <laughs> blasted this gate. And um, immediately two lawsuits went against him. I mean, you know, we all knew that these people were going to be formidable and so none of us were willing to take that on. Uh, but there were so many, I could tell you so many stories of these people that were so cruel. They did so many cruel things. And um, so I'm telling the story because, you know, it's like sometimes when we hear these teachings in the context of a retreat, we might think or misinterpret that equanimity means not doing something. But actually, it's like you can see that this neighbor, who we all love because he blew up the gate, but it didn't solve the problem. You know, <laughs> he got in big trouble. But, you know, that was not exactly perfect equanimity. Um, and what happened is it started to take a very disciplined, you know, long haul. You know, there was, a, there was corruption. They could buy off people in the city council, but there were a group of local people that, you know, asked Steve to be part of because they knew somebody who grew up there would have more clout. 
And I don't even remember, see, how many years did it take? Eight? It took eight years for us to get this, you know, they put up another gate, locked it, you know, that would, it was just an endless, you know, the gate getting locked up. I mean, it was so intense. And eight years before we won. And if we didn't just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, meetings, 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 and, uh, you know, sometimes that's what one has to do. And sometimes that doesn't work. So I see, like, when I go to Burma, and Stephen and I have had a humanitarian aid project there for 15 years, it's like um, sometimes you have to be in for the long haul. And, you know, we des- I decided, we decided, I mean, we're at least going to go 20 years if we can, but it's like um, that's a formidable government. So it's not necessarily that we choose to do things because we are going to win or that, you know, you're going to make headway. But you do them because they're right. So doing something like, say you want to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion, and then you're on retreat, but you actually see that it is actually maybe going to be a long haul, right? Does that mean you just say, well, forget it then? No, you do it because it's the right thing to do, (laughs) even though it's formidable. And often the things that we choose to do that are really that deeply, uh, in in Hawaiian the word is pono, but it's pono, it's in harmony, you know it's it's true, they're often very difficult. (laughs) When we uh, first found this land in, on the Big Island to have a meditation center at. Um, it took 15 years <laughs> for this land deal to happen. And uh, it just, you know, from, from, a, um, from the mainland of America context, no one could believe it. You know, the people that first supported us, it's like they got so, like, you know, forget it. You guys are never going to do something. But in, from a Hawaiian standpoint, it wasn't that long. Uh, but from our standpoint, <laughs> you know, it was getting long, and it, you know, it's taken long. To, you know, now we have some tent retreats, and we have a little kitchen, two, two bathrooms, two showers. And um, there was a point last year where we went to visit uh, Nainoa Thompson's family, who uh, they were involved in the amazing... Um, bringing back the ancient Polynesian style of navigating. And they're very... Um, the ancient Hawaiian values family, you know, they're won- wonderful. And we, we went to visit, and I, I went to visit his mom. And Steve had to go to the dentist, and I went over to see her. And I, I said, wow, this project is just taking so long. And she said, well, how long has it been? You know, maybe it's 20 years, I don't know. And she looked at me and she's like, that's nothing. She said, come to me when you say it's going to... She said, when it's taking 100 years, maybe say it's taking a little long. Meaning we would both be dead, right? There'd be other, you know, it's like, no, it's not taking long at all from, from that perspective. Land in Hawaii is considered valuable. The buildings aren't. 
and how you protect the land is valuable. And these things are so important. It's like when we practice, you know, it is hopefully been humbling. <laughs> I mean, has it been humbling? Probably. You know, that's good. It's like when we feel so inflated and think that, you know, we're God, it's a problem. When we're too deflated, of course it's a problem. When we get a sense of like, yeah, maybe this is possible, it's a good thing. This is a poem by Robert Frost. It's called A Minor Bird. I have wished a bird would fly away and not sing by my house all day, have clapped my hands at him from the door when it seemed as if I could bear no more. The fault must partly have been in me. The bird was not to blame for his key. And of course there must be something wrong in wanting to silence any song. I think this is like an extraordinary poem. Because it's it's like a version, right? That <laughs> we think we should have control, right? I love this. I have wished a bird would fly away, a version, and not sing by my house all day. <laughs> have clapped my hands at him from the door, right? We're trying to get rid of what? Our own pain by getting rid of the object. So we believe we can control the aversion that way by getting rid of something. And then that's the action, right? We take that unconsidered action. We just want to get rid of it. Blind knee-jerk reaction. Wham. (laughs) Because why? We couldn't bear it anymore. We think what's driving us crazy is outside of us, but it's actually the aversion to the unpleasantness that's driving us crazy. We're driving ourselves crazy. And then here's the transformation. (laughs) And I love how it's so much like how it happens for us. Well, maybe the fault (laughs) might have something to do with me, right? The fault was must must partly (laughs) have been with me. The bird, ooh, you know, you can feel that. I guess, I guess the bird isn't to blame, right? It's that shift, right? But it's so hard for us to admit it that, oh, maybe it's me that's having the problem. It's a change of heart. And then there's the real change of heart that's so beautiful. And of course, there must be something wrong in wanting to silence any song. And that's what we're doing internally and externally. You know, that need to control what can't be controlled, that that just stream of change. So we have this deeper change of heart. Um, And again, to be careful that it has to look a certain way we have, we have a friend that um, was working. He works really hard and got a phone call that his house was broken into. 
and the police, you know, asked him to leave his job and come to the house. Um, and he's done a lot of practice. And as he was driving, he had this idea that he should be sending metta to the thief. And as he was driving there, he was feeling more and more bad about himself that he couldn't send metta. <laughs> he, he called me like a couple hours later and he said, I was feeling so deficient on top of this thief, you know, stealing something. I was feeling so deficient. And I'm like, it's okay to be angry about this. You know, if, if we're angry, then you're mindful of the anger. You don't try to shift into this, you know, Pollyanna fake experience. Because if you can actually go, oh, anger, it's unpleasant, it's just unpleasant, ow, right? You can get to the ow, then you can have compassion, metta, and then maybe, eventually, you might have some genuine, genuine metta or compassion or understanding of a thief. So, so that patience that has to play in where we actually are honest. Real equanimity is honest. Fake equanimity is dishonest. The power of self-deception. <laughs> There's a, a quite an unknown book, um, except maybe in some deep Jungian circles. Uh, there's one book written by a woman who died young named uh, Sybil Berkhauser Ori. And she said, again and again, we learn that it is precisely the mistakes people make and the difficulties they experience which force them to develop in ways they would not otherwise have chosen. And I feel that so compassionate. You know, if you, if you really look at your life and instead of getting caught up in hating ourselves for certain decisions, that we actually see that, you know, the mistakes are there for us to learn from. And particularly when we take a retreat or take some space, you know, we're meant to kind of feel where we might have said something that actually was hurtful or we might have done something and that, Instead of it being, you know, somewhere to self-flagellate, that we just get this, like, intention, oh, I will really intend to try to do better. Particularly with our speech, it's so hard. The patterns are so deep. So getting that sense that there's a healthy way to look at when we feel, oh, (laughs) Or human did it again. <laughs> Whoops, you know. Gotta, you know, gotta accept that humanity. Our first retreat with, oh, not Steve's first retreat, Sayada Upandita's first retreat he taught in America. After three months, um, the last day he came into the hall, and I'd never, never witnessed this, so it had a big impact. Um, he came in the hall and he said, um, if I have harmed anyone here, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask your forgiveness. And then he said, if anyone here 
in the womb, the yogis have harmed me knowingly or unknowingly. I forgive them. And he does that at the end of every retreat. And it was so moving to me. I just started sobbing. Um, And of course we will do that tomorrow, but it's like we've added another one in there, but it's like the forgiveness practice is so essential. And yet for some people, if we introduce it at the beginning of a retreat, it's almost too overwhelming. And for some people, it's a really important practice. Like it's an easy practice. The reason we bring it in, bring it in at the end is because for some people it's so difficult. So when you hear those phrases, you'll probably even get a sense, wow, that there's an easy connection with them and it's a good practice to do at the beginning of a metta sitting or daily practice. The third one we add in is if I have harmed myself knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive myself. So that, you know, just hearing them sometimes and remembering that forgiveness is also a very important part of being human. And I I guess I just want to add that in again when you kind of just get a sense in your own heart of what we're working with with our reactions to the pleasant and unpleasant. Um, And if we just listen to our own mind for 45 minutes, (laughs) and if you just multiplied, if if we could hear everybody's mind here on a loudspeaker for 45 minutes, you'd get a sense of what silence really is and isn't. Because it's not, silence isn't the absence of noise. It's not the absence of thought. It's the absence of the reaction. The real noise is the greed, hatred, and delusion that's just, if you hear it, you'll hear it. It's so painful. And then if you think of all the people on the planet and how noisy that is. And then when you take a step without that and there is that serenity and you get that that's what, <laughs> that's what we're doing. We're, we're creating a whole different way of being where the, the real noise is the greed, hatred, and delusion. And we're not getting rid of anything other than starting to get, you know, get free of that identification with it, the identification with it. And so it stops having that noisy power. So a thought that used to maybe really have impact... Um, <laughs> I'm not doing this right for example, I thought, oh, I can't do this, can have so much impact if we're believing it. It's that belief in it that's so noisy. And then the thought that doesn't have the belief in it can just be like, oh, the floor is brown, the scarf is green, I can't do this right, you see? Just a thought. No belief in it, no noise, no impact. Uh, Martin Luther King 
Jr. said in his final sermon in Memphis, Tennessee, the night before he was assassinated. He said the reason one person passed by the person who had been beaten and robbed is because they asked the wrong question. I'll repeat that. He said the reason one person would pass by the person who had been beaten and robbed is because they asked themselves the wrong question. If I help this person, what will happen to me? The person who did stop to help asked the right question. If I don't help this person, what will happen to them? There's that unconditional love. That's the the sense that we would love someone as much as we would love ourselves. We would we would want to help somebody just as much as we would want to help ourselves. There's a tree up at uh, this place in Cortez Island in British Columbia on an island. Uh, it's an old cedar tree. And I never really noticed this before until this year. We've gone there many springs. Uh, it's it's huge, awesome trunk. <laughs> so rare to even get it to see a, a, a huge tree, an old tree like that on this planet. Uh, and if you go around from the other side where you, you don't walk by, you, know, you, you walk around, and you can actually get inside it because of a fire. So the whole bottom of this tree is hollowed out and black and singed. But if you look way up, <laughs> it's like gloriously alive. Uh, it's just, and huge, like really tall where it's really alive. And um, I just love going in there and thinking about how burnt out I can get sometimes. <laughs> and I said, this is really truly the meaning of burnt out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, wow. And just like grasping how resilient we are. And resilient nature can be, if given a chance. It's like, oh, it's such a perfect metaphor. And you just get a sense, like, when when you first came here and we listened to your in interviews, you know, there's such a sense of weariness. And you won't probably hardly remember that. You know, people come back to retreats from this space. <laughs> Not from the first few days, from the last few days. From the sense of, like, just that sense of, like, how it's possible to feel. And that it's good, it's good to feel like this. It's important. So I'd like to end with a Quotation from Srinazargadatta Maharaj. The question to him is, it's very difficult to abandon words. Our mental life is one continuous stream of words. And he said, it is not a matter of easy or difficult. You have no alternative. Either you try or you don't. It's up to you. The questioner said, but I have tried many times and failed. 
And he says, try again. (laughs) If you keep on trying, something may happen. But if you don't, you're stuck. You may know all the right words. You may quote the scriptures well. You might be brilliant in your discussions and yet remain a bag of bones. Or you may be inconspicuous and humble, an an insignificant person altogether, yet glowing with loving kindness and deep wisdom. Uh, Which would you rather choose? 